Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is David Bedford. David grew up in the Dingle, Liverpool, by the bottom of Madrin Street, where Ringo was born, and attended the same school as Ringo, though many years later. While there, he met his wife, Alex, and not long after marrying, they left the Dingle and bought a house near Penny Lane. They have three daughters, Philippa, Lauren, and Ashley, who were born in the same hospital as John Lennon, and they attended Dovedale School, where John Lennon and George Harrison began their education. When illness forced retirement upon David at the age of 35, he began a quest to discover as much about the Beatles and Liverpool as he could. He started to write for the British Beatles fan club magazine in 2000, and his first book, first published in 2009, is now in its third edition, called Liddy Pool, Birthplace of the Beatles. His second book, The Fab 104, The Evolution of the Beatles, was published in 2013 to critical acclaim It featured every family member, friend, and musician who contributed to the story of the Beatles, including the previously unknown school friend of John who started it all. In 2016, David was a co-author with Hunter Davies, the only authorized Beatles biographer, on The Beatles Book with fellow authors Keith Badman and Spencer Lee. Published in 2018, David's third book with co-author Gary Popper is Finding the Fourth Beatle, which tells the story of the 23 drummers who put the beat behind the Fab Three. He was also the associate producer and historical consultant for Looking for Lennon, a 2018 documentary film about the life of the enigmatic Beatle. Coming in 2020 is the country of Liverpool, Nashville of the North, covering the country music scene in Liverpool and the country roots of the Beatles. In 2021, ACC is publishing The Beatles' Fab Four Cities, co-written with Beatles guide Richard Porter and Susan Ryan, a book looking at the four cities that define the Beatles' career, Liverpool, Hamburg, London, and New York. David has a Liverpool Beatles podcast called LiddyPod at LiddyPod.com, and he also set up and runs the Beatles Bookstore at BeatlesBookstore.com for over a dozen Beatles authors around the world. 
David is working on another book and film projects, as well as conducting virtual Beatles tours from home in Liverpool. He's also a regular guest on podcasts and radio shows, too. Find out more at liddypool.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, David, and welcome to the show. Thank you for that introduction. That was fabulous. Uh, do I just quit now? Yeah, go out on top, right? Yeah. So take me back, David. What first really drove you to become a Beatles expert? Is it just from being from Liverpool? Is it like a boyhood love of the Beatles? Like, how did that all manifest? So I was born 1965. So, of course, I missed everything to do with the Beatles. You know, as I was starting school, as you mentioned there, the the school that Ringo Starr had attended, that was at the end of 1969, just as the Beatles were breaking up. So in the 70s in Liverpool, the Beatles were old news. They'd left the city for London back in 1963, split up in 70. So it was quite a depressed place to be. Unemployment was high. There were more important things to worry about than Beatles. So they weren't talked about very much, but I, I was just coming from the Dingle. I was aware of Ringo and of the Beatles. And it was really when I think when I started playing and that would have been about 13, 14. And the first songbook I got, which, which I've still got all these years later, it was the Beatles Complete. So they were the first songs I, I really started to learn. So it was the music more than anything that, that, that got me. Then, as you mentioned, we've got those coincidences of living by Penny Lane. And when we moved out in 1989, we moved out here. That was not a conscious decision. We found a nice house in an area with good schools and shops, etc. And we set in. So we thought, ah, we're near Penny Lane. And then, of course, our girls born in the same hospital as John and attending their Dovedale school where John and George were. That's where it started again. As a parent, we're very much involved in fundraising and thinking, you know, parents' associations at, at school. Everything coincided with me having to give up work through ill health. Initially, they thought I had rheumatoid arthritis. It took them in total three years to get the proper diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So in the summer of 2000, you know, I, I was very poorly. You know, I couldn't function. My doctor signed me off work and, and I never went back. But we were at that time trying to fundraise for the school. And because we were trying to raise money for the playground, obviously we know that John Lennon and George Harrison attended there, as did some other people who were famous in the UK. So we got national media interested. And the person who actually responded was Yoko, John's wife, who often gets a lot of bad press. She got in touch and said, how much money do you need? And we said, we sent a budget over about £27,000. And she said, well, I'll give you £30,000. I want to pay for everything because John loved his time at Dovedale. I'll pay for all the work you want to do, put some money into uh, the fund for you. And then she'd been over to the school a number of times, made further donations. And whenever she was doing something official in Liverpool, she'd invite some of the children from the school. So I just thought, well, this, this is a great story about a woman who was scorned by um, and hated by a lot of, of, of Beatles fans. So I met through this uh, school event, a guy who'd been at Dovedale with both John and George, and he was writing his stories for the Beatles fanzine had no idea how to use computers. So I said, I'll email it down to the magazine. So I did that, corresponding with the, the editor and said, by the way, this is what's going on at Dovedale School. Yoko Ono's given us all this money. Are you interested in the story? And he said, yeah, definitely. And it's one of those things where serendipity, timing, everything's perfect. I'd physically, I'd gone 
from the stage, being able to do whatever I wanted, good job. I would go for long walks, played golf, played cricket, played football. Within sort of 18 months, I wasn't walking more than 50 yards without being in severe pain. Physically, everything was just stopping. I wasn't sleeping. So I was not in a good place. And I had a wonderful doctor. And he said to me, but you've got to get your head around this fact. You are not going to go back to work. This is a chronic condition. We don't know what causes it, so we definitely can't cure it. We can treat the symptoms that you've got. You've got to find something to do. Your options are sit at home, be in pain, and feel sorry for yourself. Or you'll still be in pain, but find something to keep your brain occupied. And you'll distract yourself, and maybe you won't notice as much. So I jokingly say that my doctor prescribed the Beatles as my therapy. And it just became something for me to do. Wow. That was an intense journey. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, I love that. So talk to me, like, what have been some of your favorite experiences since you got going as a Beatles expert, historian, and you know, guru? Yeah, it, it's one of the strange things because it, it was almost like the family joke. I was working on this project. My idea was, I've always been a keen photographer. I wanted a book on the Beatles in Liverpool and there wasn't one. There was a little guidebook, that was it. So I thought, I'll go and photograph the places where I've grown up and where I live now, which are all connected to the Beatles. So I started looking up places and taking photos and buying a couple of Beatles books, reading them and thinking, well, hang on, that's not true. I know that author's never been to Liverpool. And I was realising that people were writing these books about the Beatles with very little understanding of the city. So as well as trying to get photos for the magazine, I thought I'll interview as many people as I can in Liverpool who were connected to the Beatles. And suddenly, so I was talking to the Quarrymen. So that was John Lennon's first group. So I've got to know all the members, you know, past and present, because they're still together performing. So I got to know them really well over the years. And then I started talking to people like John Lennon's sister, Julia Baird, Alan Williams, the Beatles' first manager. Pete Best, the the Beatles' drummer before Ringo. And he liked what I was doing so much. He wrote the foreword to my book. And it was this weird thing because I was working on this for seven years without having a publisher lined up. I was just doing the interviews, taking photos, putting it together. And it's actually a guy who's become a very good friend of mine, Marshall Terrell. He was over in Liverpool doing some research. And my friends and I, we started this idea of doing Beatles tours. And it was another good way to get me out of the house. And he said, I've got this guy coming over. He's doing some research. You might like to meet him. So we went around for the day and I took him to all these places I was discovering. And he said, I've been writing about the Beatles for 20 years. I don't know half the stuff that you're telling me. He rang his publisher. His publisher rang me and offered me a book deal. And so what had been seven years of distraction and fun then became this book. And once I was realizing there was no other book about the Beatles in Liverpool, I thought, right, the phrase I got for the front foot was to understand the Beatles, you've got to understand Liverpool. You've got to understand this city and its people and why it's the only city that the Beatles could have come from. And so Liddypool, and it's the question I get asked all the time, why is it called Liddypool? That's the name that John Lennon gave 
to Liverpool in a piece he wrote in the local music paper. So he changed all places in Liverpool because he loved playing with words. So I called it Liddypool. And that sort of caught on. Now, for me, I, I really had a goal of if I see my book on a bookshelf in a proper bookstore, I'm happy. That's all I wanted from it. And I got that and I was happy. But suddenly it this just caught on. And in 18 months, we sold out the 200 copies that had been printed, then did another, another 2,000, which then sold out. And I started being invited, particularly to the Fest for Beatles fans. Now, they have one in New Jersey and one in Chicago every year. And for, obviously, COVID stopped that for the last couple of years. But I, I don't think I've, I've missed a year of going over. And I just became known as the guy who does the Beatles in Liverpool. And as you mentioned at the beginning, it's then led to other books, doing the documentary on John Lennon, working on other books and projects. And it's people approaching me, asking me the questions and looking at the research that I'd been doing. So none of it was deliberate. I didn't seek out to do it, but it just, this thing, just, it just caught on. And the book came out 2009 and it's still selling and I still get so much interest. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. So tell me, what do you think is really behind the, the magic? Like why the Beatles? Was it just Lennon McCartney? Was it the perfect place, the perfect time? Like in all that you've researched, like why them? Excellent question. First of all, you have to look at why Liverpool. It, it's, it was the perfect time in music for them. So Liverpool was the second most bombed city in Britain during the Second World War, second only to London. Um, all the supplies that were coming in to keep Britain going, majority of those were coming in from New York and from Boston, some coming in from, from Canada, were coming into Liverpool as the major port. The Battle of the Atlantic, which is the only battle that lasted the entire duration of the Second World War, that was all the supplies going backwards and forwards to Liverpool. So we became a big target for the German Luftwaffe. There was thousands of people killed, homes destroyed everywhere. And even though you know, rationing was during the war, rationing didn't finish in Britain until 1954. Now, if you think th these lads, you know, Ringo and John born 1940, Paul in 42, George in 43, they're all lads born during the Second World War in a war-torn city. Now, when I was growing up, I can still remember in the 70s, there were places we just called that was just a bomb site. We knew that gaping hole where we played didn't didn't register what we were saying, but that's where the bombs had been. So that was the city they were growing up in. But the musical influences and a very cosmopolitan population, but a heavy Irish influence, which goes back to sort of the, the 1840s and the Great Famine, which is how the Lennons and the McCartneys end up in Liverpool. So there's, it was a great tradition of family and of music around them the whole time. So everybody's encouraged to listen to music. The book that I had, I've just published is called The Country of Liverpool. And it's one of the parts of the Beatles story which had never been told before, is the country roots of the Beatles. Country music was massive in Liverpool. We were called the Nashville of the North because we had the biggest country and Western scene in Europe. So probably the biggest outside of the US. So we had a big country influence we had a big Irish influence, 
But what really triggered it, and this is where the timing comes in, is a guy called Lonnie Donegan, and he released a record called Rock Island Line. Now, he was from a jazz background, but he was doing like a, some, like a thing at the end for a bit of fun called Skiffle. Him and the guitar, somebody with a tea chest and someone with a washboard, homemade instruments. This thing went to the top of the charts, and for just over two years, 1956 to 58, there was a Skiffle craze. Suddenly, instead of having to be a professional musician to play in a group, as long as you could learn three basic chords, you could play all these songs. Thousands of groups sprang up all over the country. So most of the, the big British bands that came to the four and the 60s would have started in Skiffle. That's what got John Lennon started. So he forms this group, the Quarrymen, at his school. They're playing just for a bit of fun. They weren't very good at all. And all these coincidences come in. So in 1956, we've got Rock Island Line. But you've also then got Heartbreak Hotel. And Elvis, as far as they were concerned, was the king. And you've got Little Richard with Long Tall Sally. And John says that was the record that told him he wanted to be a rock and roll star and musician. All happening in 56. The following year, and this is one of the great coincidences in the story, is John had... Um, a neighbor and they were friends from the age of five john was a bad influence most of the the parents around walton where he lived referred to him as that lennon he was trouble so ivan his mate was really clever funny he and john got on so well but because john was a bad influence at the age of 11 when it's time for high school ivan's parents wouldn't let him go to the same school as john because he was trouble so he sends Ivan all the way into Liverpool City Centre to a school called the Liverpool Institute. He ends up in a class with a boy born on exactly the same day as him, 18th of June, 1942. That's Paul McCartney. Because those two end up in the same class, Ivan says to Paul, my mate John's got this group. You should come and see them. Ivan brings Paul, introduces him to John. That's when everything changes. That's when the Beatles are born. It's Lennon and McCartney coming together. Within five months, Paul had introduced one of his mates, George Harrison, to John. So by the end of 57, you've got John, Paul and George in a group together. Now, that's, that's still five years before their first single is released. So they had something, that, that musical chemistry between the three of them, which was so unique. And a lot of musicians came and went. At one point, by 59, they'd stopped performing. Uh, George went and joined another group. And again, lovely coincidence. George is asked to, to put a group together to open a club, the Casbar Club. And he reforms the Quarrymen and gets Paul and John back together again. The Casbar was the big surprise when I was researching Liddypool. I'd never come across it. This place is probably more important to the Beatles story than the Cavern. But everybody knows about the Cavern Club. So you get all these musicians together. The important thing is John, Paul and George. They spend thousands of hours playing in Hamburg where they become a brilliant group. And then right at the last minute, Pete Best is kicked out for Ringo just before they start making their first record. What made them different? And I've spoken to so many other musicians from that period in Liverpool. He said they played what they wanted to in their own style. So when everybody was wearing suits and ties, the Beatles came on stage in jeans, cowboy boots, leather jackets. Nobody did that. 
They had the DA haircut with the quiff, you know, the Tony Curtis style. They turned everything loud. But one of the greatest things they had was they had three lead singers. Nobody else had a group like that. And each singer could take it in turns. And they could do three-part harmonies. They were so versatile. And it's funny, like me say, was it the songwriting? Eventually, it was the songwriting. That they were doing bits of, but it's really when every group was trying to copy everybody else and the songs they were doing. John and Paul thought, well, if we do an original song, nobody can copy us. That's when they went from this great covers band and they started honing their own songs. So you need the genius then of Brian Epstein as the manager, who was the only guy who could have got them out of Liverpool to London. And then of Brian being able to convince George Martin, a parlophone, to give them a record deal and work with them. So that there are so many key moments and lots of key people. I've only mentioned a handful there. It's all those things. It's like the stars had to align absolutely perfectly for all those things to happen. But it was a moment in music history that I don't think will ever happen again because everything changed in those few years. So it's a bit of everything. You need the Liverpool part of it. Then you need those key people in there. And then you get, ultimately, the songwriting talent of Lennon and McCartney. And then by the end of the Beatles' career, you got George Harrison writing songs equally as good as Lennon and McCartney. So it was so unique. Even if you tried, I don't think you could replicate it. Oh, I totally agree. I think it is like that perfect combination of, yeah, just a crazy series of events and coincidences yeah. and introductions. And even you look at stuff like once they came to the US and all of their albums being in, in the top five, it's, that's just not yeah. something anyone could ever replicate in like a globalized world. You'd literally right. have to just go in the studio and make five albums for years and years and then release them yeah. all simultaneously or something like it's just otherwise like you're going to get discovered before then. So you mentioned Pete Best and yeah. I, I've always felt like such a fascinating, perhaps tragic character, probably the most famous person who's famous for not being famous or as yeah. famous as he otherwise could have been and so you said you've interviewed him and talked to him and what is his sort of perspective on all of it just missing that train and and how it influenced the re the remainder of his life pete's a lovely guy an absolute gentleman and there'd been a mission for a number of years to either write him out of the beatles story or to ridicule him or to say he couldn't play drums, all that kind of stuff to, to put him down. So the book um, that I did 2018, Finding the Fourth Beatle, was the story of the drummers. Now, most people will know Pete Best and Ringo Starr, but I got 23 drummers, all play a li little part in the story. Now, your main guys are Colin Hanson with the Quarrymen for a couple of years, Pete Best for those important two years, 60 to 62, when they went from not being a rock and roll band to being the best in Liverpool and Hamburg. And then you got Ringo from the end of 62 right through to 1970. Others who pop up in the story, but they're, they're the three main ones. And I think the sad thing is people overlook or try and discredit what Pete did. Now, I've interviewed him officially, but I've talked to him many times. At the time, when he was replaced by Ringo, it, it was like it was the biggest story in liverpool it was huge and pete was very popular particularly with the girls brian epstein as the manager had to have bodyguards you know george harrison got a black eye 
at the cavern. So it was a very contentious decision. He was a very different drummer to Ringo. You can't do a direct comparison between the two because the and the way I I put it in that finding the fourth Beatle book is that when Pete left in August '62, that was the end of the Beatles, the great rock and roll covers band. And Ringo joins, and it's a brand new pop group called the Fab Four, who are there for making records and releasing original material. The the different bands. Pete was brilliant to what he did for that, but Ringo's absolutely perfect. And again, he's often discredited for his contribution, which was very significant to the Fab Four sound. Now, Pete, in the mid-60s, the Beatles are at their peak. He was so depressed, he actually attempted suicide. Thankfully, was found by his, his mother and his brother. He realised how daft he was and that family was more important than anything else. And he, after a time, he'd, he'd had his own band and then he, he quit that. And he, he just worked as a civil servant for years until the 80s when he was asked to just do a one-off appearance. Once he'd got past that terrible time in the 60s when he tried to take his own life, he, he just got on with life and still now his family comes first and he's well over everything that happened. Um, he got over that a long time ago. He's quite happy to talk about it. We've discussed it a number of times. He doesn't bear any grudges. He's a number of times has reached out to Paul and to Ringo to say, look, forget everything that happened back then. We had some good times. We were good friends. You know, Pete and Ringo were, were good mates. And he said, let's just get together for a beer, particularly with Paul. And he's saying, we're granddads. When you're up in Liverpool, which Paul often is, he said, let's just go and have a pint privately. Nobody else needs to know anything. Paul doesn't want to do that. But Pete, thankfully, got over it a long time ago. And he's just, he's a happy guy. He's very content. And when you look at John getting murdered at the age of 40, George, when someone got into his home, stabbed him and nearly killed him. And he said, I've not had that worry. I can walk around freely. I can enjoy my life, enjoy my family. And it, he's been great. So it does not bother him at all. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah, fame is a double-edged sword. A lot of things you definitely avoid there. Yeah. Not being that fourth Beatle. But speaking of the fourth Beatle, let's, I'd love to talk about Ringo a little bit. Because like you sure. said, like he does get maligned as just like an add-on uh, or a fill-in or not nearly on the level John, Paul, and George. But I'm definitely of the mind like that he filled a niche that nobody else could have I and mean, is a consummate professional always like a positive attitude like ready to rock and just shows up and does his job and i think it's really what the group needed more than anything so can you talk a little bit about him just like playing the perfect role there and the genius of ringo star oh absolutely that's why in the end you know called the book finding the fourth beetle because it was here's all these other drummers and giving them credit but why was ringo the fourth beetle why was he the perfect one and it's only been in the last few years, I think it's when he got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they, they made this video of about a dozen of the top drummers in the world. And each one of them says why Ringo was so good at what he did. And so when, when I was doing that part of the book, I spoke to a number of people, those who were close to Ringo, who were, one guy in particular, Rob Shanahan, who's was Ringo's personal photographer for years, but he's also a drummer. And it's interesting because one of the key things that Ringo has 
is that he's naturally left-handed. So he's born left-handed. Now, in the superstitious um, dingle of Liverpool back then, that was seen as almost like being a sign of the devil. And he, he had a nan who was very superstitious and tried to convince him to do everything right. So what he did when he got his first drum kit, he learned to play on a right-handed kit. So he's a left-handed drummer playing on a right-handed kit. Once you get someone explaining that, the way he then works his way around the kit is the opposite to what a right-hander would do. So timings are slightly different. And the way he plays it, it's, he doesn't like a complicated kit because he doesn't need to. The way he uses it was very different to the way drummers were at the time. He loved listening to jazz. He loved country and Western, he was a huge country fan. He'd been in the, his early group at Roy Storm and the Hurricanes, and they played at summer camps. So they were playing a variety of music for people of all ages who were on holiday. So you couldn't just do heavy rock and roll. So he picked up all these different styles. When he put those together, he then adds in, and it took me ages to speak to loads of people, and say, Ringo knew how to play the song. I said, explain what that is. What does that mean? And once you get down to it, um, I've used an analogy for me. So I play guitar, I play piano, I can play bass, I can't play drums. I can, I can play a, um, a snare drum, a marching drum, which I, I did when I was younger. I can't play a whole drum kit. I can't read music. So I play piano by reading guitar chords, bizarrely enough. And so every time I play something, it's different. It's whatever I'm feeling at the time. And I realized that's what it is for Ringo. Once you start understanding his style, it's, okay, I'm listening to the song. I think this rhythm will go well here. But then if you do another take of it, it will be slightly different. So once I learned those bits, I then spoke to a couple of drummers who played in Beatles tribute bands. Because I thought, these are the guys who have to try and learn Ringo's parts. And he said, you see, you make it think, you may think it's easy said but it isn't because you can be doing a song and you, you come through for the first chorus and you do this little fill going to the next verse so you think right that's it sorted but when you get to a later chorus during the song instead of doing the same fill he's come up with something different by then said so you can't even think predict what he's going to do and so you have to sit down and study and try and listen to what Ringo's doing and the best way I found to do it was I went back and I listened to all the Beatles albums in order. And this time I listened for the drumming. Normally I'd listen for you know the vocals or for the guitars. I listened to the drumming. Suddenly you realize what work Ringo is doing in the song. He doesn't need it to be at the front. No, he wasn't one for drum fills and uh, that kind of stuff. He, he doesn't, definitely didn't want solos. But what he did was always appropriate. And he had this, this great maxim, which was, just because there's a period of silence in a song does not mean it has to be filled. And he must be such a joy to work with. And th there's different quotes from John, Paul, and George at different times saying, Ringo got in the group and suddenly it, it felt right. And he was there. You could set him off like a metronome. And he would just drive the song, but behind what they were doing. 
and it, it just gelled. And I think because he was known for his Ringoisms, you know, hard days, night, he'd have these little phrases. Because he was a bit of the clown, people haven't taken him seriously. So what I wanted to do was to say, go and listen to his drumming, pick out, come together, I think it's a great one. Probably his best performance is on uh, the song Rain, not the most well-known of Beatles songs. His drumming on that is phenomenal. Or just pick something like Strawberry Fields Forever. His drumming there is absolutely brilliant and it's always right. And so you've got all the best drummers in the world saying, we wanted to play like Ringo and it wasn't easy to do. And that's why you want to say he's the fourth Beatle. He's not, there were three Beatles and a drummer. For a time, that's what they were when they were going through lots of drummers. When Ringo was in there and they got themselves into the studio and he got used to playing with them, he was integral to the Beatles sound and he deserves a lot more credit than he gets because he is still a fantastic drummer. And that is always my challenge. I say, go back, listen to Beatles songs and listen for the drumming. And you suddenly realize how important it is to the sound that the Beatles were making. Mm. I totally agree. So tell me, David, do you have a favorite Beatles era? Yes, for me, I was always interested in the early years. The Liverpool story, that's what the Liverpool book was all about. The Fab 104, the evolution of the Beatles. Again, that was going up to the end of 62. It was that transition from where they started from, who taught them to play. Every member of their group, every group that they were in, like a rock family tree, all the people that came and went, those who contributed to the story... And that's 104 people who play a part musically in the story of the Beatles up to the end of 1962. So I love giving credit to people whose stories don't get told as much. That's why it's not the Fab Four, it's the Fab 104. There's so many people. So I love the early, and I love uh, the Hamburg years, particularly. That's another passion as they, when they're really becoming a rock band. I love all, all the music they created. When you go to know what's your favorite album and stuff, always tricky. The first one, Please Me, is still a brilliant album. Abbey Road normally comes up as my favorite. The last one they ever did together, which I think was, is, is superb. And recently, over the last 12 months, I've got back into listening to the soundtrack of A Hard Day's Night. So it, it depends what mood I'm in. So musically, that can vary. But it's the early years coming through to, and including 63. That's the bit that always interested me. They were the people I was tracking down to speak to, to try and get their stories. So it's the Liverpool part of the story, which has always been my favourite part, really. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think, like, long neglected probably as well. There's Especially once they started in on, like, their psychedelic era. I think that's, like, the predominant thing, like, most people remember them for. Especially as you're getting into it with, like, younger crowds and stuff. There's not a lot of people looking into the first five albums in Britain and stuff. Yeah. And, and of course, for a lot of Americans, everything starts with the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. In 64. Again, those little coincidences. If you go back three years earlier to the day, so 9th of February, 61, that's when they made their debut at the Cavern Club. Exactly three years later, they're on the Ed Sullivan. That journey in those three years is huge. They just come back from Hamburg. They're just starting to make a name for themselves in Liverpool. Three years later, 
their performance of 73 million Americans and about to just conquer the world. And it's what a story. Yeah, it's really such an incredible arc from something like I want to hold your hand all the way through to like Magical Mystery Tour and Sergeant yeah. Peppers and even Abbey Road in, in a different context. Yeah. But and you look out at you know, different bands that have had 10-year careers or more, and there's so few that you see that kind of arc, right? It's like generally bands will start in one vein and they'll just mature in that vein. And so it'll just be like, they're still playing the same thing, but yeah. I think they were really one of the first to really go all over the place and kind of explore the space. And like the Rolling Stones did the same for a bit, but I think the Rolling mm. Stones have now, they've hewed back into just, yeah, just like normal rock and, and, yeah. and stuff. And whereas the Beatles were just like, hey, let's go all out and all over the place. Yeah. Um, let's try something new. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's definitely something that's influenced a lot of different music and to yeah. really explore like what it can be or artists today where from album to album, they can just go in totally different directions and not be yeah. scared of what people are going to think. I remember an off the wall example, but Avicii, before he passed away, went from yeah. doing like electronic dance music to, hey, I'm going to start integrating country. Yeah. When he first did that, like Ultra in Miami, people were like, uh what <laughs> you know and yeah. then it really took off and then it's just been a thing of just hey yeah let's keep integrating all these different styles and i think even the beatles bringing a lot of musicianship and instrumentation from india is also yeah. another significant thing that often gets overlooked yeah definitely because they weren't afraid to change and as you say no it just wasn't done if you had an artist and they sold records, the record company would say, we found the formula, stick to that. And they were like, every album, something different than when you suddenly, you know, you listen to, you know, Please Please Me and Hard Day's Night, then you suddenly get Rubber Soul and Revolver. And you think, whoa, what, that is such a leap. And probably at first, some fans were unsure about that, but they were not afraid to try things out and it didn't always work but they experimented and as you say i think that again has given permission to any artist who who wants to evolve and wants to try different things and say it worked for the beatles so give it a go yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Because we had seen it previously in other forms of art. We think of Picasso having yeah. his different phases and stuff that it was like, sure. oh yeah, you can be the same type of, you can use the same type of medium and be a different type of artist across yes. that medium in a variety of different ways. But the music at that time, it was still pretty pedestrian, everyone staying in their own lane. And yeah, like you said, like this did now give permission for musicians to do the same. And I think now you see on a variety of platforms, whether it's TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram or wherever, that you're seeing artists of all different types uh, really showcasing the range of things they can do that, oh yeah, I'm going to be a singer, but I'm also a painter and I also do this other yeah. thing and yeah. really integrating all these different things. I think it's leading to like a golden age of art and creativity. Well, it is, it's taking those opportunities. And I think that the biggest thing that they did, which changed, which anybody who performs their own material now owes the Beatles a huge thing because when they were starting to record with George Martin, his normal way of doing things, which was you go down, find some songwriters, see what they've got. You bring the song, the band 
learns the song, they perform it and they release it. And they, from the very start said, we want to be judged on our own songs. And this changed absolutely everything in the music industry here. This was a four piece group that didn't really exist back then. We accept this whole thing with a rhythm guitar, uh, lead guitar, bass and drums. That sort of wasn't really a thing in the charts at the time and definitely not groups who were performing songs they had written themselves. And that, again, it opened the floodgates for all these other groups around saying, wow, this is great. We don't have to do cover versions. We can release our own material. And you suddenly get the British invasion, which I know is still so popular in the US. All these artists who were coming to the fore writing their own songs this changed the pop world forever singer songwriters could now do what they really loved which was perform their own music and that came in with the beatles and is still here now and it's a wonderful thing and as you say there's so many different options now you can go direct to the public on youtube tiktok snapchat whatever it is and quite often artists do that. They then get a record deal, which comes from a social media following. It's great. There's all these, these options for creativity, podcasts included. You know, how many of us love to have our own radio show? Well, we can. It's fabulous. You don't need to have these official ways in. You can do this yourself. And it's fantastic. Yeah, it has been awesome just seeing like the death of gatekeeping and the death of credentialism and those yeah. things. And But the old guard isn't going to go quietly. But now they've got to scramble to find a way to get a toehold in the new you know environment that's going to exist and yeah. it's continuing to evolve. And by 2030, I think this is going to look, the landscape is going to look so much different with so much yeah. more power in the hands of creators instead Definitely. of these by and large like talentless gatekeepers who just had enough <laughs> money to put up a wall and build a moat yep. and said, okay, like we're going to make or break you. And now that's all getting flipped on its head. And yeah, I think it's, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. Definitely. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Ooh, it's an interesting one with failure because of the, the massive life change I went through. At, at 35, I'd gone to school. I went to job. I worked my way up. I was um, a business manager company car, really good salary, good job. And I, I enjoyed my job as well. You know, I've got three young kids suddenly to have that door slammed in your face and failure it is, that's what it felt like. You thought my main reason for doing what I do was to provide for my family. That's been taken away. What happens next? And it, in some ways, I refer to it as the blessing of disability. My faith has got me through in, in a very strong way. Having brought up in, in the Church of England, my dad was a vicar in the Dingle, which is how our family was there. So my, my faith was, was strong. And I suddenly, for the last, what, 21 years now, I've had this complete other life, which I never saw coming at all, which has just been completely amazing. Yeah. And I, I do still have the illness i still pop a lot of pills it keeps me going but i love the fact that i've got the freedom to do what i really enjoy i get to meet so many great people being part of this worldwide beatles family is fabulous and there's something 
wonderful about the message that the Beatles were becoming known for, All You Need Is Love. This thing about all these Beatles fans that I've got to know all around the world, and it doesn't matter what you look like, so what your gender is, what country you come from, what the colour of your skin is, what you believe, all those barriers come down completely because you're part of something so much bigger. And, and that's been wonderfully eye-opening. And so I've probably gone through one of the, the biggest failures of my expectations. I had a career path which was on the up and I could see how that was going to work for the next 20, 30 years that suddenly had, had stopped and my doctor was right it's a battle in the mind whether you do something or you just sit and feel sorry for yourself you will still have this illness that's not going to change what are you going to do with it and that having a positive mindset with the support of my family and my friends has created this whole other life and i like to tell that part of the story to give hope to those maybe who were at that stage I was at initially, you know, and there were desperate times. I did suffer with depression for about three years. It was tough, but we got through it. So I, it, there's a message of hope. And I hope when I tell my story of, yeah, here's all the Beatles stories and stuff, what I've done, but my story with my health and all that is part of the whole story. And if that can, give somebody else hope then that i'm happy mm. it's beautiful so if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with <laughs> anything on it what would it say and why wow i think we'd use the great mantra of the beatles which is see the one would be all you need is love or the the very the simple lyric to the song the end and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. And I, I remember hearing a, a fabulous person, and it, I think it was a sermon they, they were talking about, and it was the whole idea of loving your neighbor, whoever they are. And they said to me, love is a verb. It's not just a noun. Love is a doing word. And I think that's what the Beatles were trying to get across. And I think that's, if we can realize that love isn't just a, a gushy noun stuff, but it's a positive thing. It is love your neighbor. It is love everybody. I'd, I would have that, a version of that on a billboard and spread the love. Beautiful. Well, David, this has been such a fun and enlightening conversation. And it does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Wow. Yeah. Hmm. That's difficult because I've been blessed so many times by so many great people. I, I think I would probably say because of the impact my illness had on our family life, I was the only one working. My wife was looking after the three young children. She supported me through that absolutely unwavering and realized that if we we're going to stay in the house we were in, she would have to go and work because I couldn't. And she started out childminding 
just looking after kids after school uh, and some babies in our house. Over the years, she has progressed and is now the manager of the largest preschool nursery, I think on Merseyside, which is almost like running a whole school. By her doing that and saying, okay, we'll cope with this. We will get through this. I will support you through this, whatever. And then I'll go and work to make up for what you can't do and put up with me. And anybody who can put up with me deserves an absolute medal for endurance. So I would say life-changingly, lots of people have given me advice and support along the way, but I could not have done this without my wife, Alex. And we've been married since 1987. And to, to quote a Beatles line, we met when we were just 17, if you know what I mean. And <laughs> we were both 17, still at school, uh, met at our church, um, got married there a few years later. And yeah, here we are. We've uh, just celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary. So overall, I've got to say that that's the kindest, most wonderful thing anybody's done for me. Wow. And congratulations. That's quite Thank you. And you're a very lucky man. I am very Oh, thank you so much for joining me today, David. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Great questions as well. Oh, my pleasure. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning animated videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Mm-hmm.